Episode 159 of Sunlight at Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, we saddle up and head down to Mexico for our review of the Clint Eastwood-directed Western, Cry Macho. But first, how are you, Scott? I'm doing pretty well. I, You know, we haven't done this little trick in a while. I think it's probably been close to a year and a half, but we are recording in the same place, and we've had a wonderful weekend <laughs> full of things like watching Cry Macho and going to Broadway and going to a Yankees game. And uh, Cry Macho, probably the least of all the things that we've done. One of these things is not like the others. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think Cry Macho is probably the least of the things that we did this weekend. But I can't complain, Scott. It's great to see you in person. Yeah, it's been awesome. And we did get to go see it at the AMC Lincoln Square, which, you know, for me was a cool experience at least. Um, But I think our better movie experience was that yesterday, or two days ago on Saturday, we got to watch Goodfellas um, at the Film Forum celebrating the uh, 31st anniversary of the movie being released, um, which was obviously an awesome experience, and it was your first time seeing the movie. But yeah, yeah it's, been a, it's been a fantastic weekend. All those things you mentioned there, all of our plans just kind of worked out perfectly, which is, you know, I, I can't say for sure because I don't live here, but I imagine that it's, uh, it's hard sometimes to, uh, to schedule, to have everything scheduled out, you know, in a place like New York and definitely for everything to just play out perfectly in the way that it did. We got to, you know, everything on time, everything started on time. It was all, you know, what we wanted it to be. Uh, the game was great. The Indians, you know, won. Yes. Scott uh, was super pessimistic all weekend about, about this game. He was just excited to go to Yankee stadium and yeah. then the, uh, Indians <laughs> dropped 11 again on the Yankees for the second day in yeah. a row. And then uh, we got to see David Burns' American Utopia on Saturday night, like you you mentioned, going to Broadway, which was just mind-blowing. Um, it absolutely lived up to the the hype um, and what I expected it to be after watching the HBO special last year. Yeah. So On only its second night of being back on Broadway, yeah. showing. So was, yeah, they were in, which I didn't realize at the time. In mid-season form, I would say, but... Yeah, it's been an awesome time. I'm not looking forward to leaving, to be honest, um, and I won't be surprised if I come back before too long because uh, it's been a great time. But um, absolutely had to get in the pod recording, of course, before I uh, head out this afternoon. It would have been disrespectful to not. It really would have. Um, all right, Scott. Well, as mentioned, our movie today is Cry Macho, the latest of the 40-plus directorial efforts from Oscar winner Clint Eastwood. For the first time since 2018's The Mule, the 91-year-old Eastwood himself also stars in his film as Mike Milo, a washed-up horse breeder who, in the film's opening, is fired by his boss, Howard Polk, played by Dwight Yoakam, for being past his prime. Sometime later, however, Howard tracks down Mike with a new job. Howard's teenage son, Rafo, played by Eduardo Manette, is living down in Mexico with his unstable mother, and Howard is convinced that he needs to be rescued. He's also convinced that Mike's old-fashioned cowboy image is just the thing that will entice Rafo to leave Mexico and head across the border to Texas. Mike is able to track down the young boy quickly, but it soon becomes clear that their journey will not be an easy one as they experience car trouble, police threats, and gangsters that work for Rafo's mother. 
Eventually, their journey leads them to hide out in a small Mexican town where, over the course of the next two weeks, the two begin to reevaluate their lives and what is truly important to them as they debate even finishing the journey that they started out on. Scott, does this congenial Western prove that its aging director still has something to say, or does this road trip derail long before it reaches its final destination? Yeah, it's such an interesting question, because I, th- I think the answer might be a little bit of both. I think that this is the kind of film that proves that Clint Eastwood is still trying to say something that actually might be a little bit different than some of the things that we've seen in his other movies. Certainly his his movies from 20, 30 years ago, and I think you can see the evolution in even in things like The Mule and, and more recent stuff, that he is evolving, I guess, what he has to say. But unfortunately, I think that this film does derail a little bit uh, pretty early on. If anything, I'd say it started off the tracks and then tries to find its way back onto it. It was, I mean, I, I think we're about 15, 20 minutes in, Scott, and I was looking at you, and I'm like, I'm not really sure what we're watching here. It's a pretty tough you know, opening act of, of the film. But once it settles in, it really becomes this sort of strange hybrid mix of a lot of different things and a couple different genres, I'd say. I mean, we didn't talk about this too much on the podcast. I think we talked about it briefly, but Stillwater was a film that felt like it had a bunch of different things that it was trying to cobble together to make this story uh, of Matt Damon's character and um, you know the journey he was going through in, in France to liberate you know, his daughter from prison. And along the way it gets lost in this sort of almost romance love story esque kind of feel and and that's kind of also what happens here with Cry Macho, which I was very surprised by, to be honest. And it's nice. It's maybe the best part of the movie, kind of like with Stillwater, but I don't I think that might be praising with uh you know, a little bit of a backhand. Damning with faint praise. Yeah, faint praise. Yeah, yeah, damning with faint praise is probably a good way to describe that because like the movie's fine i think at the end of the day it's bad for the first 20 minutes in my opinion and it gets better but this is not a movie i'm gonna remember i mean i i wouldn't say the mule was a very memorable film either although i enjoyed that film quite a bit from you know end of 2018 and i think this is probably the rung below that at the end of the day i think honestly i think this is one of the first things i said to you when we walked out of the theater was just like clint eastwood is just so old like i just cannot believe that he's still acting in these types of roles. Um, and I think it also explains the limitations of the movie as well, right? There aren't any big action set pieces. Like, the one action moment happens so quickly and resolves yeah. so quickly that you're like, I don't even know what just happened. Very abrupt. Yeah, it was very strange. But, it, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to say that the movie was emotionally affecting, because I don't think that it was, ultimately. But I think there's a kernel of something there that, you know, maybe if you take Eastwood's ego out of it a little bit and cast someone else or, you know, give him someone to work with that can help refine that message a little bit more and take out some of the stuff that I think detracts uh, and distracts for that matter too. I think this could have been more, but unfortunately I think this was just a, an average film uh, at best. Yeah. I mean, I do think that Eastwood kind of stands in opposition to, um, you know, people like Quentin Tarantino saying that, well, I don't want to get to the end of my career and just be making the same film over and over again. Um, and, you know, that's why he's always talked about retirement. Um, but uh, because because I think, you know, Eastwood, obviously he is 
at the end of his career, I guess. Maybe. Um, we'll see. But um, he's not making the same film, right? And in fact, he's sort of reflecting um, very deliberately on the image that he made his name off of, you know, 50 years ago now, um, 50 plus years ago now, um, in Westerns like, you know. Felt, I mean, it felt like he was the, in the twilight of his career 30 years ago when yeah. he made Unforgiven. Man with No Name trilogy and Pale Rider and Outlaw Josie Wells and, you know, all these old Westerns. And he's been doing that for a few movies now. Like, uh, well, The Mule certainly, um, not Richard Jewell as much, but all of them are, so, are sort of, you know, examining this idea of masculinity. Um, this movie, I think, most explicitly, probably, at least most explicitly in the terms of Eastwood himself reckoning with his, his own image. Um, and that is, that's why when I watched Stillwater earlier this year, I literally did say in my review that um, it had some late period Clint Eastwood vibes. And yeah, lo and behold, now he comes out with this movie, which um, very thematically and, you know, in the plot, similar to Stillwater. Um, Stillwater is the better film. That's not a surprise, probably. Um, but I do think this film is enjoyable. Um, I'm with you that I think it starts off really weak. Um, and honestly, the problems that it has in the beginning don't necessarily go away because it's, it's for me, it's like the, there's just like an awkward stilted nature to the dialogue that totally. is what holds it back in those first few minutes. It's not like there's, you know, you point to the writing and be like, oh, the writing's bad or like, um, the performance, I mean, I personally don't think Eastwood's performance is a problem. I think he's probably the best performance in the movie. Um, but some of the supporting performances, and, and Dwight Yoakam, who's a fine actor, but early on, yeah, he's give, laying it on a little thick. But I think the real, you know, the issue with just with those first 20 minutes or so is just like the awkward, stilted nature of it. But once you kind of get into the rhythm and you start to, you know, learn about these characters more, even though that feel doesn't necessarily go away over the course of the movie. I do think it starts to work his charms on you. And yeah, you know, the middle section, like you said, when he's in the small town, very similar to the middle section of Stillwater, where he's, which is, you know, the least about the plot of the movie, right? Which is getting his daughter out of jail and more just vibes um, is the best part. And, you know, again, Cry Macho has a similar thing going on. Um, and, you know, again, like I said, I think thematically, um, maybe not, you know, super nuanced, but I think um, he is exploring his own image, like I said, and reflecting on that and, you know, kind of thinking about, is there still a place in this world for, you know, this kind of cowboy image that, again, he made his name off of and that he's got in this movie as well? Um, and if so, you know, sort of what is that place? Um, or, you know, does he need to modify what we think of as this tough guy macho image right um and you know all of that in the context sort of of him as this father figure of sorts to the young boy i think all of that stuff works really well and the the kid eduardo Manette, um not a super polished actor but um, again i think their scenes together they have a good chemistry they play off of each other pretty well um and that relationship is obviously very important to the success of the movie so i think those elements of it works and by the end i was I, you know it's a nice movie like it it's uh it's decidedly more sentimental than um the two movies that i mentioned eastwood's other recent movies um richard jewell and the mule 
um, which were, I think were more cynical about the ideas that it was, that they were exploring. Um, but, you know, on the whole, because, you know, Richard Jewell and The Mule, I think, were both sort of surprisingly strong films, um, in my opinion, um, that when I came into this movie, I actually kind of had some expectations that I may not have had before. Because, you know, again, I think Eastwood has gone in an interesting direction in his late period of his career here. Um, so, on the whole, I was probably a little bit disappointed because I don't think the movie um, rises to the level of those two movies. Um, I do think the movie's worth your time if you're, you know, a fan of Eastwood, if you're a fan of Westerns, if, you know, you kind of know what, what to expect, you're probably gonna enjoy it. It's a very old-fashioned film, but, um, it's a surprisingly, you know, good-natured, sweet film, like I said, so I think, uh, people will enjoy it because of that, although I'm not really sure how many people have actually ventured out to see this. Yeah, it does appear that, um, and what's the right way to put this? Uh, no one saw this movie this weekend. And it's on HBO Max as well. Yeah, it is on which, you know, I feel like we're normally very on top of that type of stuff. And I think we, we sat down on the film and then the Warner Brothers um, splash goes on the screen. We're like, wait, this is a Warner Brothers? Is this on HBO Max? Yeah, it's just, you just got to assume at this point, I guess. With, with well, yeah, TV. if it's a Warner Brothers movie, it's on HBO Max. Mm-hmm. But I was just kind of like, oh, this is, I didn't even realize this was an HBO Max film. Um, it, I, I think some of the things that you say about it are interesting. I think... Again, going back to maybe this notion of I think that there was something else or something new or something different trying to be said. I I just I'm not sure that they were like Clint was able to do that to the extent effectively for me to the extent he was trying to do. I think that this whole I like the premise of this sort of image of, all you know, traditional cowboy Western folk. And but th- that just feels like it's painting in the background, and I almost wish there was more connective tissue between those two things because you very much just have to sit there and like obviously it, I shouldn't say obviously at the beginning you get this you get these this wall of pictures and newspaper c- like clippings of all, of all of you know his character's success earlier like riding you know riding horses uh, things like that being a cowboy. But I just, it's hard to find that connective tissue through the film. And I almost, in some weird way, I almost wish it was, the film was grander in its scope to sort of connect those two things a little bit more strongly and actually really assess almost kind of right in front of your eyes that sort of notion. And I, maybe there was just some element missing for me there uh, to, to feel like those, that theme was properly explored or um, assessed. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of think this, the theme came across fairly strongly enough for me. I mean, again, they set the whole thing up with Dwight Yoakam kind of telling him that, look, I think you're the person to do this because you have this old-fashioned cowboy image and that's what's going to get through to my son. And initially, that is what happens, right? Like, Raffo connects with that side of him. Um, but I think, you know, again, what you're watching over the, the course of the movie is um, as he is kind of um, debating what he wants to teach this you know, young boy, um, he himself is also reflecting on, you know, what, what is the image that, um, he's traditionally had and, you know, do do his new feelings about what is going on here. Is that like contrary to that image? Is that a positive change to that image? And, um, what, what what are his new feelings though? Just that he's tired? Um, No, I mean, I think, I think his relationship with like this 
you know, woman and her daughters or whatever, we get to see like a gentler side of him, basically. Yeah, that's um, true. Yeah, that was a, that was the thing, and I mean, maybe transition could talk about his performance a little bit more as well. Um, that was the thing that struck me about his performance in this movie, again, as opposed to like The Mule or Gran Torino or some of these other movies where he's playing the old guy. Um, mm-hmm. There was there was more of a warmth to his performance. Um, you know, he's still he's still the grouchy guy. Okay, they certainly tried to make it a warmer performance. Sure, yeah, there's he's still the grouchy guy, just because you know that's what you come to expect, and they got to get some you know sort of humor out of that at times, but. Um, you know, it's a warmer performance. I think some, I think his strongest moments are, you know, some of the more emotional moments, um, like where he's talking about his family and, um, there's, you know, late in the movie as well. He gets a couple of, you know, pretty, pretty emotional monologues. And I think he's able to pull them off really well, despite, you know, despite being 91 years old, despite being maybe a little bit off the pace, so to speak generally in his performance and obviously the physical aspect is not there i mean it's non-existent really now i mean he's barely moving around the yeah the set but i do think his performance is good and it, and again it's different this movie is offering something different than any eastwood western you've seen before and any late period eastwood film that you've seen before so yeah thematically it it kind of worked for me um and again i think his performance is is part of that um, but just sort of, um, again, shift, shifting his image as he starts to get in touch with his softer side in a way and kind of, um, you know, maybe reflect on what did he miss out on for, you know, many years while he was off trying to be the tough guy and, you know, doing whatever he did, breeding horses and stuff on the road and mm-hmm. cultivating this macho image, um, you know, is there still time left for him to settle down and, you know, kind of have um, that second life? And, you know, is that kind of what he wants to teach Rafa, right? That you shouldn't let your, your life um, pass you by while you're trying to, you know, cultivate this image. Yeah, I, it is an interesting reflection. I feel like maybe even more so for the people, you'll be able to to make those connections like a little a little bit easier having if you're more familiar with more of his films i mean i have seen some of the you say early eastwood but you know pre 70 year old eastwood <laughs> i don't know if you can call that early sure. but you know if you if you saw those those movies and i think that maybe you'd even have a greater appreciation if you are you know on the level with this film which you know if you're used to clint eastwood and rolling into a clint eastwood movie and 2021 and want to see that kind of movie you may be in for a bit of a surprise so i think your your whole take there around knowing what you're getting yourself into is probably important for enjoying this movie yeah and there's an interesting conversation too at the end of the movie um i kind of made a comment to you about it when we left the theater but um he's in the car towards the end with rafa and um you know there's some pretty on the nose dialogue where he just come out and he's like i this macho stuff is you know it's not worth anything um and, you know, kind of just poo-poos the whole, you know, macho, again, that macho image, that image that Clint Eastwood himself made his career off of. But then, um, you know, there's a physical altercation that happens, basically, and um, Clint Eastwood kind of has to play the hero there. And then um, when they get back in the car and Rafa kind of says, you still feel this way about all the macho stuff? Um, and, you know, it's kind of an interesting moment of, like, again, 
obviously there's something there to what he's saying about there's nothing to this macho life. You know, he's obviously reevaluating everything as he's, um, you know, met these people, spent more time in this town. But, um, you know, he's also, uh, but, the, but the, you know, he's, it's also not completely like destroying that image, right? Because yeah, again, he, it shows that there's still some usefulness left in that kind of physical macho image or whatever. And I don't know, again, it, it leaves you on a nice sentimental note of like, yeah, maybe he has some regrets about the choices that he made, but I think ultimately where he ends up is like, I think, you know, there was good in that image that he cultivated for so long. And now he's, you know, life has given him a second chance to sort of experience that other side of um, what he could have been doing. For for how long, no one knows, because obviously he's an old guy, but um, he's getting that second chance. And I think that's what a lot of the movie is about. So. Yeah, it, it is interesting, too, because as we're talking about the performance here, I, I wonder if, you know, for someone like me, I guess I'll back up for a second, just going back kind of tying to me and what I was already saying earlier, I think that the movie could have been served very well by having someone else play the role that is, is played by, by Clint Eastwood here. And I wonder if that is driven a lot by the fact that I don't have the same attachment to this particular persona of Clint Eastwood as other people, because I do think that just... It, this sounds like maybe this sounds horrible, but just like how old he is, I just think limit it limits the performance in a way, and I think it makes it like it not that suspending disbelief is something that we never do in a, in a theater <laughs> these days, but I think you really have to suspend disbelief that like Dwight Yoakam's rolling up to this ninety plus year old guy's house and being like, "Roll on down to Mexico, bro, yeah, get, yeah, get my son for me." Like that's fine, whatever. I just think that it is. It's it's limiting like it takes me out of it mm-hmm. a little bit and I have a hard time reconnecting uh, for a good chunk of the movie. I think that's a part of it for me. Not that the performance is bad, although I'm not as high on the performance as it sounds like you are. But I do think that just the fact that it is Clint Eastwood playing this character for me is limiting and sort of in sort of the the immersiveness of it. At the same time, I also recognize that because it is Clint Eastwood, a lot of people might buy into the narr- like the thematic narrative of the movie even more. Yeah. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword there. It's like he should have made this movie 10 years ago or something like that for me. Yeah, there's an extra res- there's an extra resonance to it, I think, because it is him playing it. Yeah. I do hear where you're coming from. I mean, personally, I do come down the side of I'm I'm totally fine with it being him and it. Yeah. Movie's probably better off for it. Um and you know, to be clear, I don't think he gives like an Oscar-worthy performance or anything. But uh, I, don't, I don't think, this is I don't think the standard is super high in this movie as far as acting goes. So I do think he is the best performance. But yeah. you know, we've seen like Martin Scorsese, for example, with The Irishman. He made a movie that had similar themes um, to this one, but you know, he didn't. I mean, not that he's not really an actor. I guess he wouldn't cast himself or whatever. But the point is, he 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 made a movie um, sort of about aging and reflecting on you know, he cast the choices the that you made in your life. But he cast, right, he cast Robert De Niro in the him role. And I think there's still that extra layer there of you're also thinking about Scorsese himself as a filmmaker and, you know, Certainly. is he having regrets about maybe did he give too much time to his work and not enough time to his family? Who knows? Um, or too much time to making mob movies specifically. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think, I think again, because it is like a Western, right? It is the type of movie that Clint Eastwood made his name off of. It's a type of movie you associate with this macho image. Sorry. For me, at least, it works extra well because it is actually him who's playing the role. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just wonder if you take someone who's played more modern Westerns. I don't know. Like, 
Is there someone who's who's consistently played some more played in some more modern westerns? I don't know, would Josh Brolin count or something like that? Maybe. I mean, Kurt, Kurt Russell's still old, but he's been in you know quite yeah. a few. Yeah. Anyway, there's just the thought that crossed my mind. Josh Brolin, as the suggestion, is he's probably yeah. too, he's probably too young to, to to play this role. I mean, he's still only like fifty or something. Yeah. Like that, but. You know, maybe Kurt Russell could do it. Scott, I'm wondering what you think about Eduardo Manette's performance. He's kind of the second lead here as Rafo, obviously kind of an unknown actor, um, playing this young Mexican boy who Eastwood is sent down there to quote unquote rescue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do you, do you think he showed some some promise as an actor? Did you like his chemistry and interaction with Eastwood? Yeah, I think that he shows promise. I think that's I think that's a fair enough way to describe it. He doesn't deliver on that promise in this movie, uh, for for my you know from my perspective, and I had a hard time figuring out if that was like what part of that was the performance that he was giving, and what part of that was that sort of stilted dialogue that you were referencing earlier. Because there is a lot of that, and I think there's a lot of that particularly with this character and his interactions with Clint Eastwood, which is like most of the movie. <laughs> like, like that is like half the movie, at least. And sometimes I think that it hits this sort of, you know, level where it is going smoothly. There is a lot of chemistry between these two, and they're playing off each other quite well. And then there are moments where you feel like, you know, th- this feels like, you know, a 10-year-old kid talking. And to be fair, he's playing like a 13-year-old kid. Yeah. So that's not way off base. But I think that, like a lot of elements of this movie that I've talked about, I think there is something about it that detracts from the immersion of the experience. That's something that just takes you out of it. Like, wow, that's like a weird thing to say. Oh, that was kind of delivered weirdly. Oh, it's weird that it feels like we're shoehorning another strange, like, I don't know, dick joke of some sort into into this between a 91 year old and a 13 year old like it there's just like little things here and there that that take you out of it um and and that feel like it's not a consistent tone throughout maybe is the best way to put that and again i'm having a hard time discerning what part of that is is the script and what part of that is the performance and i'm as as is usual it's probably a little bit of both yeah, I mean, I think because the movie is so sort of easygoing and Eastwood, you know, is just giving kind of a very casual performance, his performance comes off a little awkward because he's giving it a lot in some scenes. Um, you know, like... He's trying to put on this macho image, yeah, right? That's what he's trying yeah, to I do. Mean, yeah, I yeah. mean, yeah. So I guess it works in that regard. But when you when you combine it with the fact that, you know, he's not that polished of an actor, I think yeah. it leads to some sort of... He's raw. Unintentionally, you know funny moments at times again like just his his overt seriousness about like he's not a rooster because he has his pet rooster named macho right that's kind of also where the title comes from but mm-hmm. he's not a rooster rooster he's macho like it's just kind of a little bit much again for i feel like it's just a little bit off with what this movie is because um nobody else is really giving it that level of seriousness sincerity again maybe there's a, there's a point to that like you said but um i just think Maybe it, it in theory it works better than an actual execution, um, and, and I certainly think sort of the emotional the swings of the character, and I think this is to the point that you're making, like when there is that point in the movie where all of a sudden he doesn't really want to be with Clint Eastwood anymore because there's a certain revelation that's made, and 
obviously this moment is quite short-lived because of what happens immediately after this but like all of a sudden him you know running out of the car and like it just feels weird it doesn't feel consistent like you you can like conceptualize why he would be upset but like it doesn't feel believable Mm -hmm. in that moment and i think that's where i feel more confident saying the performance is not quite there but maybe there's promise yeah um i i think that's that's a good way of putting it probably um Plot-wise, I'm wondering, is there anything else you want to add that we haven't sort of said about the movie? Again, it has it has a sort of structure not dissimilar to Stillwater. I think Stillwater's is even more, like, defined like Act 1. Oh, Act certainly, Act yeah. Three. This one's a little bit more um, muddled. Yeah, but I think, you know, again, you have sort of the setup. You have the plot get kicking into gear, and then you have this sort of middle section where it's more just vibes and them hanging out in this small town and he's breeding horses and he's you know he's breaking these like wild horses that they have there and they're meeting you know the the woman marta and you know rafo is you know just sort of learning some stuff um and then you have again the lat the third act right when they decide whatever that they're gonna try to go back and meet up with dwight dwight yokum and the complications that sort of arise there um Anything you want to say about sort of the structure, plot of all that? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I have too much more to add than I had at the beginning. But what I will say, just to sort of double down and reemphasize, is that this movie is one of those things that it it does sort of effectively build tension in certain moments. And because of, I, you know, there's probably a whole host of reasons why they then choose to go this route. One of which maybe it's just that, you know, these particular set of actors are not equipped to do you know, big set pieces or stunts. Maybe it's that it's a it is a COVID set. I don't know if this was, this was completely finished before before COVID, but I'm sure that put a limitation on. Yeah, so this was made during COVID, um, and I'm sure that put a limitation on on what scenes actors were comfortable filming and things like that. But the the tension that it builds just resolves so quickly in in pretty much every single scene where tension arises. And there's nothing wrong with diffusing tension quickly, but it just felt it, it felt too quick. I think there, yeah. there wasn't any payoff in a lot of these big tension building moments, um, and I think that that's true of the climax. I think that's true of the little the little sort of tension tension building moments along the way. And I will say the one time maybe where it does pay off a little bit is that you do kind of wonder what's going to happen right at the end, right? I mean, this is tying it back to talking about the plot. You know, where, you know, spoilers, but they do make it back to the border in Mexico. And there is this moment where you're not quite sure what either Rafo or Milo is going to be doing here at the end of the movie. And the fact that nothing crazy happens and all this tension sort of diffuses quickly actually was really nice. That was like the one moment where mm-hmm. I thought it worked pretty well. Where, you you know, at this point, you've come to accept that this is the kind of movie that this is. And in many ways, this is a really sort of sweet ending to the movie and so when you get that moment where you know milo milo is clearly not going to be crossing the border back to the u.s and rafo is not sure what he wants but knows that there there is only one direction that, that he can realistically go at this point i think that's it's a it's a sweet moment i think a lot of a lot of people when i've seen talk about this movie and review this movie they talk about just how nice and how sweet the movie is and i think that in spite of the fact that it's sort of lets you down really quickly in a lot of moments from this tension that builds maybe because it can't decide what kind of movie it really wants to be and is split in two minds for a good chunk of it 
which also speaks, I think, to the sort of the genre-bending nature of it. When you get to the end of the film, it's not indecisive. It's quite decisive. And I think that you're on the level with that decision once you get to that point because of how quickly the tension diffuses in the other parts. And so that actually works really well and is quite nice. Yeah, I mean, again, you see some shades of, like, the old Eastwood as a director there. And obviously, you know, he has movies where that are more dri- that are driven more by suspense and tension. Sure. <laughs> and you see that he's still effective at setting that up. But again, yeah, I think something like Stillwater did it better, right? Like, I think that soccer game scene, for example, in oh, yeah, Stillwater, where he sees, yeah, yeah the, the guy there um, is, yeah, that's, that's just a more effective... Um, you know, building of of tension and su- sustaining the tension, I yeah. guess, is what we're saying. But you know, we did joke afterwards that uh, this wasn't the kind of movie that was going to tie someone up in a basement and torture them. Yes, uh, spoilers <laughs> for Stillwater, I guess. But um, yeah. but yeah, no, uh, I mean, I, I think uh, I think you know, I, I because I enjoyed naturally, I enjoyed the sort of vibes of it more. The you know sections where there wasn't as much plot going on, I didn't mind as much when you know, the action kind of fizzles out, fizzles out. Although, you know, again, it is weird when they're like headed back to the border and <coughs> there's the big car, you the know, rooster runs him off the road. And, you know, you think this is going to be the big boss battle or whatever. And then Macho just attacks him and that's it. Like yeah. Macho attacks him. Milo takes take the, gun, the gun. Yeah. And then take the car. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so D- done in 30 seconds. Yeah. And again, you know, <laughs> on the nose kind of in a way that it's macho the the rooster who rescues them right after he right after Clint Eastwood's been giving this monologue about how yeah you know there's macho is a bunch of bs but um yeah i mean i, I still think you know it, the ending is the ending particularly does work i think i think the the third act they do t- put a nice put a nice bow on it there at the end um all right scott anything else you want to say before we move up into move into wrap up for this movie no, I think that's about it. All right, what's your favorite scene or moment from Cry Macho? Yeah, look, I think there's like, I'm, I'm going to go with a, a, a sweeter moment because I do think that's the kind of movie that it is. And and I guess I haven't really explicitly said it, but you've been saying it, I think, quite a bit here over the course um, of the episode. But it, it's really nice. It's really nice to have these sweet moments with milo and marta and the whole family and and a callback to you know another movie that i guess we technically haven't really talked that much about on the podcast this year but uh you know coda the the moment where milo and rafa are sort of in the cantina with marta and her family have it like preparing a meal and you have milo interacting with her grandchildren one, at least one of whom if not both of them you know are deaf and the fact that he's he knows some sign language and is able to communicate with him. I mean, that's a really sweet moment. It really is. Um, look, I'm not going to sit here and say this is as emotionally moving as Coda is or something like that. But it was funny to see these sort of inspirations or things that look like inspirations for this movie. Although, obviously, all these films were made separately and a different, you know, not necessarily being influenced by each other. It is fascinating and, and heartwarming to, I think, see those moments. And... That's the kind of movie that this is. It's, it, it is a movie that succeeds more in the heartwarming, probably, than than this big set pieces, the big action and whatnot. And I think that sort of perfectly captures it. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a really good choice. Honestly, might be my choice as well. One just sort of, like, goofy moment that I liked that I'll just highlight here. Um, 
is that w- during when he first finds Rafa, right? There, there's a he's basically participating in cockfighting, and the police show up, and yeah. um, everyone <laughs> so scatters. Yeah. And Eastwood just kind of goes behind these boxes, limps behind a box, yeah, and then they just like cut to yeah. like, and it's like time passes. You don't know how much time, and then he just like comes out from behind the boxes and yeah. is like, "Okay, it's it's all good now." It's like completely forgot he about just that scene. Chilled behind the boxes for who knows how long, and of course the police, you know, never found him. Apparently, never looked just, behind a box. It's not like he's yeah, he's stealthy. It's just kind of a kind of a funny moment. Again, probably not intentionally so, but uh, just a moment we haven't discussed. We hadn't discussed. Pro- so we haven't really discussed. That. I mean, honestly, Scott, we didn't really discuss anything pre the 30 minute mark of this movie when we didn't even talk about one of the you know fairly major characters yeah. in the, of the film in terms of Dwight Yoakam's ex-wife Lita who is a crazy person yeah, like she, a certified crazy person and tries to like seduce Eastwood in a very weird scene um, yeah yeah that that uh, along with like the setup of the movie and the early stuff with Dwight Yoakam that's the other stuff that contributes i think to the movie getting off to a really rocky start is that um, it's Again, that actress not you know didn't really hit the right note for the movie. I think not not the right tone of what the movie was going for. I think she's I don't know if I blame it, her, but giving it a lot. But yeah, and it's just kind of a chaotic character. I mean, you know, again, maybe that's the point that you know she's unstable and got to get 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 Rafa away from her and Dwight Yoakam because they're you know they're both. Um, well, it's a bit of a two hander there, right? Because that's ostensibly what it is, but really yeah. it's. I mean, you find out later in the movie that Dwight Yoakam's character doesn't. Maybe he, maybe he does care about Raffo. Maybe he doesn't, but he definitely wants Raffo for leverage and negotiating yeah, this financial yeah. deal with her. And I, I do, I don't want to get top, bogged down too much in this. I find the character a bit troubling in the way that they portray her as a sort of crazy woman who's more or less a whore and. Just cra- I mean, just crazy. Like, I don't know how else to describe it. And yeah. It's weird that well, there's two female characters in this movie. One of them is portrayed like this, and they're all horny for Clint Eastwood. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, is she actually, you know, horny for him, or is she just trying to get what she wants? Yeah, I mean, that might be... I mean, what does she want? I, it's not even clear to me what she wants. I, yeah, I don't know. Try to get him to not take her son away or something. I, I don't know. Maybe it's maybe I mean, that's it. But yeah. I, I think it's less problematic because... Because of what you're saying about Dwight Yoakam's character, both parents turn out to be problematic, right? It's not necessarily like a... It doesn't necessarily become like a gender thing. The point is just that, um, you know, Clint Eastwood is kind of this positive father figure for him. and um, Which is hilarious. Yeah. Um, and he's, you know, the person that Rafa would be best off with, um, more so than either of his parents. I don't think there's any argument there. Um, so it, you know, it makes kind of the the ultimate decision of the film a much tougher one. I guess for me that the that whole end could have been attained without, I think, exploring some really uh, negative stereotypes uh, of women. But look, I, I, like I said, I don't want to get too bogged down. Sure. Uh, let's put a score on the movie, Scott. What do you give Cry Macho out of ten? Uh, Five point seven. Uh, I'm giving it higher than that. It's a 6.5 for me. I think the movie is fine. Again, I had a good time watching it. Um, I certainly didn't regret seeing it. Um, no. And I think it's it's good for what it is, even if it falls a little bit short of 
um, some of Eastwood's recent efforts and certainly falls short of Stillwater, as we've said a few times now. But I enjoyed it more getting to watch it with you as opposed to watching it by myself. Yeah, that's that's true as well. Um, all right, Scott, that'll do it for our review of Cry Macho. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to recap uh, last night's Emmy Awards and the big winners from those. So we'll be talking a little bit of TV. Uh, so if you're interested in that, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Or if you're not, stay tuned anyway. Yeah. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, we're going to take a few moments to talk about TV, something we talk about, you know, somewhat infrequently. Twice a year. The, yeah, <laughs> here on the podcast. But we love talking about awards season, um, as our listeners will know. And last night was the big night for TV awards with the primetime Emmys. Um, things going a little bit chalky, I guess, um, in a lot of the major categories. Um, you know, I think people thought that the crown would win most of the drama prizes, and it did. And I think people felt that Ted Lasso would win most of the comedy prizes, and it did, with Hacks, you know, taking a, a few um, in there that to maybe make it a little bit more interesting. But, um, you know, Ted Lasso cleaning up in, you know, three, I think, of the major acting categories and then uh, for comedy series, um, and then um, winning for best comedy series as well. Yeah. Um, I, and Scott, I think the area maybe though that we were most interested in, um, because I personally haven't watched Ted Lasso or The Crown recently, um, was the limited series um, TV movie um, section. You had sort of the two big contenders being Mare of Easttown um, on, from HBO earlier this year, and then The Queen's Gambit, which was one of our favorites from last year. Um also, I May Destroy You, um, you know, kind of wanting to play spoiler and playing spoiler in the uh, writing category with Michaela Cole getting uh, the the award that I think people felt that she had deserved for a while now. You know, it was passed over at the Golden Globes, and that was a big controversy, but she got the uh, writing award there. And then Kate Winslet beating out Anya Taylor-Joy for Best Actress was, I think, another one that People had their eyes on Michael K. Williams did not win for Best Supporting Actor in a limited series. Um, Which people were surprised by. Yeah. But I wasn't? I don't know. I didn't... I don't know when Emmy voting ended, but I think even if it had ended after mm-hmm. after his death, I don't know if that would have changed things. Yeah. So Mayor of Easttown getting like some of the acting prizes, um, with Evan Peters also winning for, for Mayor of Easttown. Um, but then, you know, at the top of the whole list, Scott Frank wins Best Director for Queen's Gambit, and then Queen's Gambit ends up taking home um, Best, you know, miniseries, um, you know, Best in the Category. You know, for me, obviously, Queen's Gambit was my jam. Um, I can't decide whether I prefer this outcome. Probably not to to one where Anya Taylor-Joy wins and maybe uh, Mayor of Easttown wins, but... Um, I just, you know, I got to tell myself, she's still young. She's going to get her, she's going to, you know, her time is coming. Everyone knows it. She's, you know, star of the future for sure. Um, but Anya losing out there to the veteran Kate Winslet. Um, Scott, other things you want to highlight? I know you're more well-versed in some of these shows than I am. You've watched, I think, Ted Lasso and The Crowns. So. Yeah, I have watched all the awards buzzy TV shows. I don't watch much deeper down the TV list than what you see probably at all the award shows, but I have... Uh, 
made an effort this year to, I guess, kind of catch up on things like The Crown, watch Ted Lasso, uh, both of which are incredibly enjoyable. I mean, I don't know if I've ever really talked about The Crown on here, but I watched all four seasons of that sort of earlier this year after season four came out in the you know the last few months of, of 2020, and just an utterly enjoyable you know TV show that is just probably the platonic ideal of period pieces um, for me at least and and you know not doing anything crazy but just sort of tailored to perfection and refined to perfection um, in terms of its period drama ness uh, wonderful show not surprised at all that it won with I think it's fair to say pretty minimal competition this year compared to others you know the boy the other the other shows in the category were the boys bridgerton getting nominated you know the handmaid's tale lovecraft country those are probably the two that may have had a chance of giving it a run for its money there wasn't really much behind lovecraft country at the end of the day unfortunately which honestly is also a limited series not not a drama series. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what the deal is that, with that. That's the thing I was going to say is I feel like maybe this is a sign of the limited series becoming more of a thing, right? Like, um, Well, I think that's been true for, for a bit now, sure. to be honest. I mean, that is most of what HBO... But, I mean, when you take Game of Thrones and Succession and Westworld out of the picture, most of what HBO does is this limited series type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they've been doing it for... I mean, it feels like it's been more of a focus of their programming since, like, True Detective started, you know, three or four years yeah. ago, moving that direction. And I think it makes sense for a lot of business reasons and also getting better talent into the into it, like not committing to two, three, four seasons. I mean, it's I think it's how you get people like Andy Taylor-Joy to do The Queen's Gambit. I mean, there's no way that she would ever sign on to do, you know, a multi-season run <laughs> in Bridgerton. Like, she's just not going to do that. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, I think COVID probably played a role in this as well. You, you know, you mentioned something like Succession, which I think got delayed, right, because of yeah um, COVID, and that obviously, I mean, that won, I think, at the previous Emmys. Um, it did, yeah. yeah. It, won, it had won. It won last year. Yeah, it won last year. So that's a big, up. big yeah. competition there, taken out of the equation. You know, on the comedy side, like uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is always a factor. Yeah. They got delayed. And Barry, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think... You know the path. The path was a little bit clearer for the crown. Although I mean, the crown again is certainly very probably would have won decorated previously yeah. pre- prior to this. This is us being another one that's like it's over now. So um, you know, that yeah. wasn't really a factor, even though it, it was nominated. Has, but has I mean, it had the, the fewest nominations it's ever had. I think. Yeah. I think the only other nomination that that show got maybe was like Sterling K. Brown, or maybe there was another one too. But yeah. But low. so I mean, the crown probably wins anyway. Ted Lasso probably wins anyway. But it did just feel like it had an extra air of predictability about it because, you know, the field was a little bit thinner due yeah. to all of these reasons we're talking about this year. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. I think you're asking me some of my other thoughts. I mean, look, Queen's Gambit, Mayor of Easttown, again, I, I can't remember at this point what I've said on the podcast versus off the podcast, but I think that it's actually, like, probably the right way it shook out. Like, I think Queen's Gambit is better than Mayor of Easttown as a show. Kate Winslet's probably giving a career performance as as mayor, and Anya Taylor Joy certainly is going to have more bites at the apple. She's certainly worthy of an Emmy with her performance as Beth Harmon, but especially when this is, I mean, this is the Oscars, right? For TV, it's the same people, types of people 
voting for these things, your prestige HBO drama is always going to beat something like, in my opinion, like with the, the traditional performance, when it is as good as it is. I don't even mean for that to take away from what Kate Winslet is doing. But like when it is that kind of performance at that level, it's going to be really hard to beat that with something that's a little bit different. Um, unfortunately, I think that that's, I don't think that that's right. And I don't think that should be how it is, but I also think it's sort of a reality of it as well. And, you know, I think we're going to see fewer and fewer of those types of performances at that level, because I do think they're pretty rare at this point. I think to, to get a performance like that from Kate Winslet is pretty rare. And I think that Anya Taylor-Joy is going to have a lot more performances that are unique in the way that she creates them and high quality in how they are written and and sort of contextualized with the people that she has is clearly choosing to work with. I mean, she's, she's choosing to work with, you know, if you go back just in the last year or two, when she's sort of, you know, better known, more filtered in what she's doing, not doing things like New Mutants, not doing, you know, other stuff that's a bit all over the place, which, I mean, she barely ever did anyway. Um, she's Her hit rate's going to be pretty high, I think. So I think that that all works out in the end. I, like I said, Queen's Gambit was a better show, in my opinion, than Mayor of Easttown, but the performances were pretty tight. You know, other things to note, there's really not much else. I mean, it really was a tale of four shows. If you throw in Hacks, the closest to maybe throwing things off the night for, for Ted Lasso, but even then, when Ted Lasso was in the category... I mean, it, it, it won, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the it, yes, Gene Smart won for lead actress in a comedy series, but no one from Ted Lasso is nominated because they're all supporting actresses, you know, between Hannah Waddingham, who won, and Juno Temple, et cetera. I mean, those are the two, you know, female female characters in the show. They won The Crown, Cleaning Up, Token, Emmy for, you know, Person of Color, when you're talking about I May Destroy You, which was a topic on the night, about how there was a record number of black nominees, uh, people of color, but none won. None, no acting performances won. Obviously, RuPaul's Drag Race won for four straight years for its fourth consecutive Emmy. So it's not like they're being shut out entirely there. Um, But the black experience being recognized but not awarded, uh, you know, it's a talking point, Scott. I think it's still a talking point. It's it's maybe a step in the right direction that we haven't seen in other award shows, but the narrative still continues, which I think is is fair enough because, I mean, it's it's been the story of the entire season for I May Destroy You, is it not being recognized? Yes, it gets, now it gets recognized, but now it's not awarded. And it's a tough, it's tough year. It's always going to be a tough year, but like with female directors and that, you know, annual conversation at the Oscars, you know, just because you're getting them recognized in, in terms of nominations, which doesn't even happen every year. You also have to then award them too, and and make it feel like it's a it's a fair shake even in the awarding. And I think that there's a pretty good argument that it's still failing to hit the mark there, especially when you have things like Lovecraft Country, which were superbly crafted, although not again not because it's such a genre show. Not surprised it doesn't get awarded. But when you have, you know, Journey Smollett, when you have Jonathan Majors, Michael K. Williams, um. And exploring the themes that that show explored, and really addressing a narrative. I mean, Scott, this is probably deeper than you're. Maybe you're familiar with. Maybe you are familiar with. This, I don't know. But like when you're taking, when you're essentially co-opting material that is, you know, for a hundred years been incredibly racist, mm-hmm. um, and has these really <laughs> strong underlying themes of classism and racism. It's pretty remarkable to then sort of retake that and 
and reframe it and make it into this something. And I know it's an adaptation of a book as well. So it's not just Misha Green and, and the creators over there doing it on their own. But it's really it is really remarkable and the fact that it only got a couple nominations, I think, um, and didn't win any. It was a bit of a disappointment because I think that maybe more so than any other show on television last year, even though it wasn't my favorite, what it was doing and and the narrative it was creating and, and sort of the retaking of material that has, you know, for a century been used against people of color is pretty i think that's pretty inspiring but again it's super genre it is a horror television show um it was never probably going to get too much traction but a disappointing a disappointing example of a, of a wider problem probably yeah no i mean it's a, it's a more difficult conversation than just the conversation of do they need to be nominated because of course the answer is yes to do they need these to be shows nominated. absolutely need, yeah absolutely um and but, and you know again to your to your point the, the emmys did nominate them and that's a positive step you know it's like i said i think it's a more difficult question about you know do we then have the obligation to award some of these shows um or award some of these performers yeah i i don't know um, i mean maybe not an obligation but just yeah. let's just look at the outstanding lead actor in a drama series category sterling k brown jonathan majors Reggie John Page, Billy Porter. That's four of the mm-hmm. six nominees are, is it six? Yeah, four of the six nominees are people of color. But, like, John, Josh O'Connor's going to win because it's the crown, yeah. because it's Prince Charles. Like, it, it's weird when you have such a, a high percentage of nominees. And it's and it's awesome that, that there is, right? But then Josh O'Connor's going to win. Yeah, I, I, I'm I all know. for spreading the wealth. I hear you on that. So I think... Uh... I think that uh, there's a good argument to be made there, yeah, for that category, certainly. Um, but, I, you know, I would say I guess it does feel like a positive step that you even have four out of six in a category like that yeah. nominated. So. Yeah, and I'm glad we can we can talk about them not, like, the conversation of people of color not winning awards yeah, yeah. as opposed to people of color not being recognized, recognized. or nominated. Yet not. It's nice that that is, the, that, is the, that is the directional trend of the conversation, but it also feels like... You know, there's there's still more there. That's a lot of. I mean, I just pulled that category up. But there's a lot of categories like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in the lead actress category, right? You have Uzo Aduba for In Treatment. You have MJ Rodriguez, and you have Journey Smollett. Like those are all. Yeah, you know, that's half the category right there. People of color. But Olivia Coleman's winning for Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. Again, not surprising. Some of it is just because yeah, because the Crown won everything, and by. You know, it's nature. Everyone in the yeah. Crown is white. So. <laughs> um, yeah. I... Yeah, yeah. Tobias Menzies winning too. I think that was a bit of a surprise, but um, yeah, Giancarlo Esposito, O.T. Fagbenle, um, Michael K. Williams in that category. Yeah, the list goes on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, okay. Anything else you want to uh, sort of highlight about the the awards there, Scott? Uh, Julianne Nicholson finally winning an Emmy. That's cool. She won for Mare of Easttown in her supporting role. Julianne Anderson, another Crown winner. Um, She's fantastic. I don't know very much about Margaret Thatcher, but then going back and like watching clips of her speeches and then like doing a side by side with Gillian Anderson's performances, it's pretty remarkable, yeah. honestly. Um, all right, Scott, I think that'll do it for this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Uh, any parting words before we uh, sign off? Uh, it's a bummer. It might be a little while before we do it in person again, but. <laughs> I think it'll probably happen again before the end of the year. If not here in New York, then maybe in Chattanooga, because sure. I think we'll all be home at the same time again at this point. Probably, yeah, around Christmas time. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, but it's it's uh, it's been a fun one. It's always fun to do it in person. But, Absolutely. Um, Especially because it worked this time and you didn't have to hide in a bathroom. Yes, that is, that is true. <laughs> Some may recall when I was... 
perched on a toilet last year in Atlanta. What was the movie we were talking about? I don't even. It remember. was actually our most anticipated. Oh, of, it was most uh, anticipated. 2020, which that turned out really well, but um, I don't recall that episode. So yeah, move on. That's the lost <laughs> episode, I think. But anyway, um, that'll do it for. Uh, this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Uh, if you've enjoyed the episode and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. But even if you can't support us over there, uh, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, do all the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. Uh, and we hope that you will be back for our next episode of the podcast on which we will be reviewing the adaptation of the Tony-winning musical Dear Evan Hansen. God bless. Uh, Until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road. Thanks for listening.